Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Luke Stutters. Hi. John Epperson. Hello, everybody. Matt Smith. How you doing? I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Dylan Andrews. Dylan, do you want to introduce yourself? Let us know who you are, why you're famous. <laughs> sure. So I uh, am a developer at a company called GoNoodle, and I got started at GoNoodle about four and a half years ago. Prior to that, I was a uh, full-time musician, teaching and touring in the Chicago area. Um, I'm original, originally from Nashville, Tennessee. Towards the end of my music career, I had a buddy who did a boot camp called Dev Boot Camp. It was one of the first in Chicago, and you know, I got my feet wet with it and realized it was something that I really enjoyed and took the plunge and did the same thing. And after that, I moved back to Nashville and landed a job at GoNoodle. Yeah, I've been there for four and a half years. And I'd say throughout my time there, I've done probably 70% Ruby, 30% JavaScript. It ebbs and flows over time. And yeah, and I think you all found me through a quick lightning talk I gave at RailsConf a couple of years ago uh, about uh, an RSpec trick. And yeah, I'm just happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming. Your app is slow and you probably don't even know it. Maybe it's fine in most places, but then the customer loads the page up, that one page, and after a couple of seconds, their attention disappears into Twitter and never comes back. The reality is there are performance issues in your app and they're affecting your customer experience. What you need to do is hook up your app to Scout APM and let it start telling you where the slowdowns are happening. It makes it really easy. It tells you how slow things are and what the problem is, like N plus one queries or memory bloat. It's also built for developers, so it makes it really easy to identify where the fix needs to go. I've hooked it up to some of my apps and I saw what I needed to fix in a couple of minutes. Try it today for free and they'll donate $5 to the open source project of your choice. Just go to scoutapm.com slash devchat and then deploy it to your app. Once you do that, they'll donate the five bucks. That's scoutapm.com slash devchat. We were talking before the show and I mean, you gave us a real good list of things to talk about. and I, I think there's a lot here, but there were a few that kind of tied together with regards to I'm assuming it ties into your transition from uh, music into development. You've got growing as a developer. We talked a little bit about uh, team culture, but we decided to start out with imposter syndrome, and and it kind of plays with all of those different areas, I'm sure. But yeah, when you when you talk about imposter syndrome, I'm wondering like what is the question that you typically get asked that leads you into a conversation about imposter syndrome? I would say. Oftentimes, if it's from someone I'm, who's you know more junior than me, they might ask, you know, how have you dealt with that in the past, or you know, what do you think its its role is in our career, and like, what are some of the pitfalls that can come from it, and how can I help mitigate it? And then you know, then I just typically you know dive into some of my thoughts on the matter and talk about you know why I think it's important and all that. So I'm happy to sort of give you my thoughts if that sounds good to you. Yeah, let's kind of start there. I know that some of the other panelists have opinions on this too, and it might be interesting just to see where we kind of come to consensus. But yeah, how, how do you think about imposter syndrome? Yeah, so, you know, I think it's a very important topic for a few reasons. One is that it's just so pervasive. I, I really don't know any good developer who hasn't felt it in one form or another. And it's really not something that just junior developers feel. I mean, it can be throughout your career. 
And I also think that like the first step to sort of dealing with it is getting awareness of it. It's the, having an awareness of its existence kind of disarms it in a way. It's kind of like, you know, someone is super depressed and they didn't realize that depression is like a thing and other people have it. That's like a huge step in realizing like, all right, we can actually, you know, I'm not alone in this. And then a third thing is just the effects of it can be huge on people's careers. You know, it, it can keep them from reaching their full potential and, you know, just really being the best developer they can be. And then conversely, companies don't get the most out of their employees. And so they don't, you know, which is just a lose-lose all the way around. And so I think there are things that both companies can do to create an environment where imposter syndrome doesn't thrive. And then there's all the things that people can do and perspectives they can take that help it from their end. So I think it's sort of a twofold approach that creates the best environment and where people can just be, you know, thrive at their greatest capacity. Yeah. When you were talking a little bit about just recognizing that you're dealing with imposter syndrome reminded me a little bit of the scenes in the Hunger Games movies where <laughs> PETA is going real or not real, right? Because he's got this stuff going on in his head and the reality just doesn't reflect what's going on in his head. And that doesn't necessarily make it easy, but it gives you a starting point to kind of grab something and go, okay, this may not actually be the realistic situation that I'm dealing with. I'm still emotionally kind of wherever I am, but at least then I can start making a rational strategy for how I'm going to deal with whatever I'm looking at, right? Am I not good enough? Okay, that's the imposter syndrome. I still have the feelings of inadequacy, but I know that there's at least some chance that if I go for it, I might be able to just pull it out. Totally, yeah. And I think, you know, that, like, to that point, there's, there's almost like a bug in the human operating system, so to speak, that is like, and, and it, it manifests itself in the form of, at least in the developer world, but all types of things. Like the moment something that you once thought was hard becomes easy to you, you immediately put it in the category of easy things, right? And so like, you know, I know, for example, like when I first got started, we can just take a random example. Like I, let's say I'm learning how to do joins on, on tables, right? And so I, might, I would look at the stuff that I know as a developer and say, you know, everything I know, that's the easy stuff. That's what everyone can figure out. That's not impressive. But something you can do joins, which is hard for me now, that's that's a real developer, you know. And once I get to that level, I'll be a real developer. And unfortunately, the moment you do learn it and it becomes easy, you put it back in the category of, oh, this is this is easy. You know, never mind. This actually, I was wrong. This isn't the real developer stuff. So you're constantly just chasing this sort of unicorn of this real developer that you never, you can't achieve. And so I think it's important to really, you know, take stock of how far you've come, right? Think about what you learned, you knew when you were two years ago and think of what you know now. And that can be a good antidote to just feeling those feelings of insecurity. I think it's interesting that you, you brought us right to insecurity, right? Which, you know, is obviously the root of imposter syndrome. But I mean, one of the things that I find interesting about talking about imposter syndrome is, to me, imposter syndrome is one manifestation of that insecurity. And we sort of have other manifestations, which 
So, all right, to just jump straight here, we also have people that sort of like are doing the whole white tower thing, right? I've achieved this stuff. I'm really awesome. You're not as awesome as me, right? And I think, I think for me, especially when talking about imposter syndrome, like it's, it's really important to remember that like, I, I feel like a big cause of many people's imposter syndrome is that you have this group of people that also are insecure, except that they manifest it by shoving other people down. Right. And, and so like, and, and sometimes like that's enough to get angry about. Right. But I guess, I think it's interesting that we talk about imposter syndrome in terms of insecurity, because I don't think that you can get rid of imposter syndrome if you have people continually stirring the pot, but I don't think you can get rid of the people that are continually stirring the pot unless you address their um, insecurities too. So anyway, I was wanting to throw that a little bit out there. I was just kind of curious. Have you experienced that? Does that jive with what you have run across? Do you have like the most awesome workplace ever? And that's sort of like how your path through all of this has worked. I guess what I'm trying to curious to get at is like, how does this mixture in your life work? Yeah, you know, that's really, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And that's honestly, it's a, it's something that I 100% agree with, but haven't articulated that clearly. So I, I, I think that's pretty cool. And yeah, in terms of how that relates to, you know, my situation and my team, I think it's totally um, on point. You know, if you do have those people who are, making people people feel stupid and creating an environment where people can't ask questions. Yeah, like that's a breeding ground for imposter syndrome. And it, that has to be addressed from that level. Because like I said, it's just, that's almost insurmountable. Now, I will say that luckily, I've been, I've been lucky enough in my company to where there hasn't been, at least on the engineering side, anything that's really threatened that. And, and, and really exacerbated that issue. And I think that that is why, you know, I've been able to succeed as a developer in large part. Like if, when I started, I got unlucky and I feel bad for these types of people, you know, but if you, if you started and the people who were mentoring you were, you know, their main priority was making you feel shitty and making you, you know, not feel like you can ask questions, you know, the people won't thrive. And I also think it's, going to make people leave. And that's another thing about our team that people have stuck around, especially in the engineering team. You know, all of us right now have been there more than four years, which as you know, is a lifetime oftentimes in the developer world. But yeah, so I think it's a, like you said, it's, it's a two-way street. And without the, 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 the environment being conducive to people feeling comfortable, no matter how well, an individual is fighting their imposter syndrome personally, it's going to be insurmountable. So yeah, I think that's a very astute point. So was that a personal journey for you? Did your team actively support you on that? Yeah, I would definitely say yes to, to both of those. You know, when I started, it was, there were two other back devs and they were very senior and i was basically the first junior dev they had had at that company and they took a very proactive approach in terms of you know letting me know what is expected of you you know we're not at the very beginning going to expect you to crank out five point features you know we're going to start you with bugs and chores and then slowly you'll develop and by this point you know we might expect this of you and there was a constant dialogue going back and forth of you know getting feedback like if i 
was doing something wrong, they would tell me. And luckily, I was also pretty disciplined about asking for that feedback. And I would, you know, ask questions when I didn't know the answer. And I got to give them credit, honestly, like of all the questions I asked, many of which were, I mean, we don't like to talk about stupid questions, but they were just not probably even the right questions to ask at the time, but they're just infinite patience. And yeah, and the funny thing is in the end, when you have an environment, the person ramps up faster. And from a business perspective, you're getting the most value out of them faster, right? So it's, it's even from a financial perspective, it's uh, most beneficial to have that. And, you know, that's not to say that there aren't times where I would have a rough day, you know, we would be learning something new. Like there was a point where all the back in devs, we were kind of thrown in the deep end on learning React um, and React Native. And, you know, it was tough, but it was sort of an environment of we're all in this together learning. Let's help each other out versus like, ooh, I'm further along than you. And, you know, look at how much better of a developer I am. And just having that lack of ego and competition is, is huge. Did you go on to get more junior devs after your apparent success? Yes. So we, we had a front-end developer who was a junior dev, and they went through a very similar experience. And, you know, I think everyone, you know, on the flip side, it does take some, you, you, even if you have the most welcoming environment, it takes confidence in the person and some grit to, you know, ramp up because we have had some people that struggled more than others. And I think that it wasn't just imposter syndrome, but, you know, in relating to what's expected of junior devs, I, I personally think that, you know, while you should, you should you need to definitely be asking questions all the time, but you should be working your ass off when you're a junior dev in terms of, you know, maybe spending time after work learning new technologies. And so some of the juniors we brought in have succeeded more than others, but Overall, people have done well, and it's been a, a good environment for them. And some may get there faster than others, but you know there haven't ever been any major, many, any major disasters. So you know that's been it's been good overall. I definitely give Go Noodle a, a solid A for being a good place to become a junior developer and all of that. Yeah, the only thing I would say that makes Go Noodle slightly challenging to be a Go Noodle dev and this or junior dev, and this is. It's actually something that I've learned from the the guys that I worked with and who mentored me is that I remember this guy Steve would always put it this way is that at Go Noodle, all of the easy stuff has already been figured out. Now that's obviously not true, but basically what he meant to say is opposed to an agency where you might be spinning up CRUD apps over and over and learning that stuff. At Go Noodle, you know, it's a product company. So we have a big robust code base. It can be very daunting to come into as a junior developer. We're dealing with, you know, scale and things like that, that if you're working in an agency, you don't have to work with as much. And so uh, that's the one area where I say good, it'll be kind of tricky to be a junior developer. It is definitely a different experience. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I don't actually even, I'm, I'm, this is hearsay for me because I've actually never worked in an agency, but I do remember when I first started, you know, one of the developers saying like, yeah, you know, it's going to take you a while to get a bird's eye view of the whole code base. And that was definitely true. And that's just, if you're spinning up new projects all the time, that comes with its own challenges, but it's just a different beast. And yeah, so, but honestly, personally, I, I love it. It's been really interesting to deal with problems of scale and deal with a huge code base. And, you know, you're constantly trying to make it better as opposed to an agency world where 
people often say, you know, you kind of do it and then you never see it again. In a way, like the GoDo code base is our baby, right? And so it's, it's, you know, we want full test coverage. We want to make sure it's highly performant. Like we take pride in our response time, caching endpoints, like all of it is just a huge source of pride for us. And so that's really, that's fun. And not to say that people don't take pride when they're at an agency or anything like that, but I think it's, it's, it's a different kind of thing. So I work, I, Matt, I think you run an agency, but I, my first job was at an agency and the last six years, you know, before I went full-time on the podcast, I was freelancing and I still write code for myself, but it's different. The, the vision comes from somewhere else, right? If you're working at a company that produces a product or a software system, then you have people that are, you know, they have a vision for things, you have a vision for things and you live in that for a long time. And I think that's the real difference between the agency and a, a product company is, is I come and I be part of your vision for however long I'm contracted there. And then I move on to something else. And so, you know, you, you care deeply about the, the caching and the maintainability and things like that, because you have to deal with it day in, day out. I care about those same things, but a lot of it really boils down to, am I going to be able to get my next gig? And so yeah. I need to be able to demonstrate that that stuff actually happens. Yeah. Yeah, that makes total sense. As you've had new devs come on and you've kind of gone full circle in all this, the part I look at when I have junior devs on my team is where they ask questions, right? Like, I totally 100% agree um, opening the door to questions and making sure everybody is comfortable with questions and making sure that they're comfortable in that they can ask like you said, particularly the, the wrong question, and then you can redirect and guide them. And that's a, a value add thing as far as I'm concerned from a senior to a junior level type of a person. But the part that I find very interesting based off of certain people's personalities is some people um, won't realize when you're giving them rope to hang themselves. Not to say that you're trying to hang them in any one shape or form, but, you know, it, there's always this edge of test of how autonomous can you be on any one particular thing. And we're all at different stages of that. I mean, if you don't say that you're not doing that at all points of your career, I think you're not trying hard enough. Yeah. But some people won't ask questions and then they'll go way too far out on that limb and get in a really particular situation, you know, precarious situation. Others will ask questions all the time and will never gain that confidence. And how have you kind of seen that and helped people come closer to the center on which side that they're on in that spectrum? It oftentimes evolves over time. And a lot of it is feedback based. So, you know, if it is the person who isn't asking questions and goes out on that limb, maybe in PR review when they request it and you realize like, you know, inside you're thinking this is just not how you should have done this obviously you're not gonna say it like that but you know you you would very kindly you know ask like you know what what got you down this road and you know give them feedback to say you know next time around if you're feeling unsure or you you're starting to sort of go down a path that we haven't discussed just touch base with me real quick, right? You know, just have a real quick conversation and run it, run it by me. You know, that can be super fast, like 30 seconds. I'm thinking about doing this, 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 and this. And a senior person can typically be like, no, like, I mean, in their mind, they would quickly, a flag would go off and say, actually, let's, let's maybe look at this. And then this is sort of the answer to the other part of your question of the people who ask questions all the time. 
it can be very easy, as you know, as a senior dev to be like, here, just over, let me show you what you need to do and sit down and literally type out what they want. But you're not doing that person any favors, right? So when you, if they're asking questions all the time or you're redirecting that person who was going to go out on a limb, just give them a sort of, it's kind of like the Socratic method, right? You know, you want to ask questions and then from that, they can learn to ask other questions, right? And so, you know, teach them to teach themselves, you know, and that, that's going to be the most valuable skill. And so being kind of intentionally vague and, you know, I honestly remember times where I was like, it can be painful as a junior dev, like, you know, you're feeling like an idiot and then you just want the answer so you can finish this ticket because you're thinking, oh man, this ticket's taking me so long. I, I wish my senior dev would just like bail me out, but he's doing you a favor or she is doing you a favor by being vague and saying, Think, look into this, Google this and see what you can find, right? And, you know, a year down the line, if, if that's sort of the vibe of your culture, you'll thank them for it because you're going to be a stronger developer. Because, I mean, as we all know, you're always going to be learning new things. The biggest skill is being able to figure out solutions on your own. So, yeah, I think each personality needs to be taken separately. Feedback is key. And being willing to make junior devs and people uncomfortable is important, I think. Yeah, totally agree. I don't think we have imposter syndrome in the United Kingdom, I'm afraid. All of the developers I've worked with have been like James Bond, and not the new James Bond either, but the old ones, you know, kind of Roger Moore (laughs) style. Sometimes in the pull request, you know, my colleague will just raise an eyebrow and sip a dry martini, and uh, that's all the feedback you'll get, really. Right. The, yeah. uh, no, seriously speaking, I've never suffered from imposter syndrome. You'll be amazed to hear. This is, this is not something I've ever had, partly because I'm so great, obviously. <laughs> but aside from that, I think it, it obviously is a real thing. So I'd like to know, how, how, do you, how do you deal with people who've got imposter syndrome? How do you spot it, firstly? You know, how do you know if you're... If you're if your colleague's got a problem and how, how can you help them? What steps can you take from a management perspective? I think one sign that I've seen with people is, let's say we're having a brainstorming session, right? Where people are throwing out the ideas for solutions to things. And this person is being quiet, but then you later realize in maybe their code, they had the best idea, you know? Like they actually were the most on point with what they were gonna do. They just didn't feel comfortable saying it in that environment because, you know, oftentimes because of imposter syndrome. And if you spot things like that, you know, it's, I think, very helpful to be like, yo, really good job on this. Next time we're talking about stuff, I want you to speak up. And not only just asking them to do that, but I think, you know, and this makes people uncomfortable, but asking their opinion. You know, a lot of people won't speak up, but just say, what do you think about this? And they're not going to just be quiet. They'll answer. And the more you do that, the more comfortable they become. You know, people have different personalities and some people just, it takes a long time to get comfortable with people and be talking. Yeah. And I think another thing is, I think just lack of taking initiative on things too. I think that uh, it's very tangentially related to what I just said, but you know, if, if there's a, Let's say there's a bug ticket, right? There's a, a 911, so to speak. We've got this issue in the back end, and 
we need to get it fixed because it's causing issues for these users, right? So that's a time crunch. We need someone to fix it, right? And if this person never volunteers, that's kind of an indica- indicative of them not feeling up to speed on it, right? So, so some senior right. person saying, all right, I want you to take this, right? And if you're, and they're going to be uncomfortable, but if, as long as the senior person thinks they can do it, they'll probably do it successfully. At the end of it, they'll gain a lot of confidence. And on the next one, they'll nail it probably, and they'll be a lot more comfortable. So it's kind of just nudging people along, pushing them outside of their comfort zone. And I think you really like in any career, but definitely in development, being out when you're outside your comfort zone, that's when you're growing, you know, and, and that's that's just sort of like a guiding heuristic for one's career, in my opinion. I couldn't agree more. I would say when you see a difference between the potential and their confidence in their ability, if there's a mismatch there, that's definitely a place to start looking for it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, people are just super quiet, but they crank out top quality code. And that's, yeah, so. Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby on Rails? Maybe you were sad that you missed out on some of the interactions you could have gotten at RailsConf, but you're still not sure you want to travel because of COVID-19? Well, I'm putting on a Rails Remote Comp. We're doing it in August, and it's going to feature a lot of your favorite people from the Ruby Rogues panel and other friends and neighbors across the community. So if you want to join in the fun, come watch some of the Rails Comp video talks with us during a live watch party online. And then come see all of the live talks the next three days. Then come check us out at railsremoteconf.com. That's railsremoteconf.com. Yeah, you have to be careful though, because some people, it's just their personality not to speak up. It's not a confidence thing. It's just, you know, they just don't want to be out there. But on, on the other end, you know, I think a lot of this advice is centering around one idea that, and, and this is where I've experienced more imposter syndrome is, you know, because Luke was like, I, I really haven't experienced this. And I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, as a programmer, I mean, I'm sure I have not been 100% confident in what I could do, but I always knew about where my limit was. And so I wasn't that worried about, okay, you know, am I good enough? It was, okay, what do I have to learn? But with podcasting, it's a completely different story for me. And it's because I was in the place where I was going, are people going to like this? Are people going to get on board with this? Are people going to, you know, buy into the ideas that we're putting out there? Am I, you know, early on Ruby Rogues, when we started it, I mean, I was the guy turning the crank on the other end, making sure it got edited and posted, but I was the junior guy on the show. And, you know, and so it was like, do I even fit in here? And, and that kind of thing, right? And, and am I adding to the conversation enough? And so what I find is that a lot of folks, when it's imposter syndrome, it's not, I'm not sure I'm good enough for X. It's usually, I'm not sure I'm good enough to fit in with these people. Or I'm not sure my ideas merit consideration the same way that somebody else on the team does or things like that. And so that, that's, that's where you, you need to be watching. And yeah, some of these behaviors then play, play out of that. And we've talked about a lot of those behaviors. But yeah, where, where I see imposter syndrome really come in is people wanting desperately to fit in and not being sure that they actually do. Yeah, I think you're totally right. It, it can be so contextual. It's so contextual. And, you know, the most confident person in one domain can feel imposter syndrome in a domain where they're not, you know, they're not comfortable. And, you know, we're all so complex. And so there's definitely, you know, just because you're, you have imposter syndrome, that doesn't mean you're an insecure 
non-confident person. It just means, yeah, in this facet of your life, you're outside of your comfort zone. And like you said, you want to fit in. So I think that's a great point. So one thing I particularly wanted to ask you, you said that you came from a music career prior to this. So I, I also, I, I didn't have a career in music. I was a music major. So I was not an original, I was not originally on the path to be a developer myself. What made you, what made you change? How was it different? Like, did you, were you confident over in the music world? Did you have that experience of being confident in that domain? And then switching domains was when you began to have your imposter syndrome as you, as you were talking about, or how did that all go for you? Yeah, totally. I will say that that was a shock, you know, of the, of the many interesting parts, at least to me, of the transition, that was a shock to me because I was, you know, at the end of the music career, I was kind of the, I was the professional, I was the teacher, I was sort of, I was very confident in that field. And it had been a while since I was in school even. And so being thrown into a world where I didn't know the most and I was so confused sometimes, I didn't even know what question to ask. That was a a feeling I hadn't felt in a while. So that was definitely something to deal with. But uh, in terms of the transition, yeah, you know, um, just to give you the short story of it in high school, I became obsessed with being a jazz drummer and just being a drummer in general. It's all I did. I was just like a psycho for it, practicing all the time. And I decided I wanted to move to a city where I could do that, but also, and I actually did end up getting a music minor, but every musician in Nashville told me, you know, you should go somewhere you can play, but don't worry about studying music because you don't need to. And that's a whole other conversation. I think music majors can be valuable. Anyway, so I actually ended up studying philosophy in, in college, which was awesome. But yeah, so got into the jazz drum you've seen at the end of college was in a band in college that got picked up by a label. And I was the drummer in that tour for a while and then started just doing like studio session work around Chicago and teaching. And it was awesome. Like, I really don't have much, many disparaging remarks about my music, my life as a musician. But I, you know, in your 20s, you learn about yourself. And one thing I learned was the road life is not for me in the long term. Uh, I liked it. It was a blast. But it wasn't something that I wanted to do long term. And also, I just wasn't getting the intellectual stimulation that I kind of want and need as a human. Um, It wasn't, not to say that it wasn't stimulating, but it just wasn't giving me what I needed. And so sort of those two things made me realize, you know, maybe I should check out some other stuff. Another guy I played music with did Dev Bootcamp and he did a, it was a very fruitful experience for him. And I sort of started messing around with it a little bit and came to realize that it was, it was this unique union of sort of right and left brain tendencies. So, you know, there's still room for, creativity and sort of doing your own thing, but it's also very analytical. And I, I like both of those, like a, a, something that's a combination of both of those. And it really just fit the bill. And yeah. And, you know, like I said, took the plunge. It was, that bootcamp was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And yeah, honestly, in, in hindsight, one of the best decisions I've ever made. Um, it also really scratched the itch of, in music, you do collaborate with people, but I just love working at a place where I'm surrounded by smart, like-minded people where we're all working towards like a greater goal that we believe in. And it just, I, for whatever, music didn't give me that like this does. And I, I love how, you know, 
it's similar to drums. I think music more than anything taught me how to hone a craft. Not to say that I'm the best at that, but that's at, at a high level, that's what I love. I love honing a craft. And as we all know, development is infinitely honable. And there is no like developer who is finished learning. And that's so awesome. And so, yeah, so it's just been great. And um, it was painful, like I said. I honestly had like a bit of an identity crisis because for years I was like, you know, the drummer in my family. I was the 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 musician among my friends. And so it, it felt weird to transition, but, you know, that's what life's about. And I thought, I think it was a great decision. I got, a, I got an important question for you. All right, hit me. A Buddy Rich or Gene Kruger? <laughs> that is the classic. I would probably go with Buddy Rich just because of the. That's the wrong answer. I'm that's sorry. the wrong answer. No, no, no. I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and leave right now. Then, yeah. yeah but, oh, you you're going to defend Buddy Rich? Yeah, I guess so. I'll, I'll preface by saying that style of jazz drummer, like the big band, I have utmost respect for them, and I don't. We don't need to geek out too much here. But I am more of like a hard bop. 50s like elvin jones tony williams type of guy that's more my style so i'll preface by saying that i'm not the most knowledgeable of the big band drummers but buddy rich his speed was just so freakish and the granite gene Krupa had it as well but yeah just the the ferocity and the speed of buddy rich but it's it's almost a coin toss i think they're both great and played a huge role in like the progression of the the drumming art form so by no means yeah. Would you want to be on a dev team with Buddy Rich or Gene Krupa? <laughs> Man, that's a that's a tricky abstract question. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to stick with my, stick my first know. answer. What's that? I was going to say, I'm having some imposter syndrome here. No, <laughs> Buddy Rich was the guy who would like go out like second to the last song and be like, you know, take them off for a break, fire everybody, and then make them go back and play the, play the last of the set. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Buddy Rich was uh, a bit of a diva. Although it wasn't Gene Krupa too. I honestly don't know that much about Gene Krupa, but yeah. <laughs> I definitely wasn't going at it from that angle, Matt, but now I've clearly made my choice. Cause I definitely don't want, I forgot. I don't want to work for people like that. <laughs> or with. True. This is true. Yeah. Good point. So one thing that I'm wondering here, and we've kind of talked our way around, okay, here's how we support people and recognize that people have imposter syndrome. But yeah, let's say I show up, you guys are talking about drummers. I'm assuming you're talking about drummers. And I, I feel like I don't fit in, okay? But it's not drummers, it's code, right? So I don't, I don't feel like I belong. I'm having that imposter syndrome moment. What do I do, right? What do I do to overcome that? And, and yeah, I get that there are different personality types and some people may not be willing to, you know, put themselves out there as much. But yeah, what, what do you do? Yeah, so I think one thing that helped me personally is, and a lot of people at work almost like made fun of me for this, but I just, every time I heard something I didn't know, I wrote it down. And I put it in a document that was like, I'm researching this later. You know, this is, I need to know what this is. And if I end up researching, I mean, I remember almost every day I would come in and I would have some question based on the research from the night before. Like, you know, I, was, I heard y'all mention this and I was researching this. What about like, and then I looked it up and I'm still a little confused on this and this, right? So that's, I think that's huge because it helps me as a developer 
feel less imposter syndrome because I start to understand what people are talking about. And it also, you know, being on the other side of that, it's cool to hear questions like that. Like the junior person asks you something and you're like, you know, I honestly don't know the answer to that that well. I should know the answer to that more. And it makes me want to learn about it as well. So that could be, that sort of vibe of curiosity can be insidious. And I think another key thing is keeping, keeping notes like that. And, you know, we've talked about it before, but having the bravery to ask questions, like to literally say like, you know, very respectfully, you know, when y'all were talking there, I wasn't really following everything. Like, what is this and what is that? And, you know, also sometimes saying, if you don't have time to talk about it now, like, could we maybe carve out a time where I can ask questions? That was something I, I was always very paranoid about because I am like a, a furious question asker. And I always was, I know I'm sensitive to the senior devs around me and I don't want, you know, they have work to do. I'm not trying to make their day go slow, slow them down too much. And so I would say, you know, I've got some, I've got maybe 10 questions. Let's find a time once a week where we can go through these and for my questions for the week and do that. And honestly, just this sounds maybe a little harsh, but work your ass off if you're if you're a junior dev. Like you you just it's just an important part of it. And I'm not saying, you know, you know, juniors, you better be working 90 hours a week or otherwise we're going to fire you. It's nothing like that, but just that was kind of my approach is I want to learn this stuff. I want to be contributing. And, you know, I don't like feeling confused. So let that fuel you and just, you know, know. And also just know yourself. Know how you learn is another thing. I think a lot of people don't know how to learn, how they're learning, sorry, what their learning style is. And that's important, right? Do you learn from videos? Do you learn from asking questions? Do you learn from reading? That's all really important stuff to know about yourself because, you're going to be learning at a rate that is perhaps faster than any time in your life. So, you know, you want it to be as efficient as possible. That's what I would probably say. Well, and to your point there too, honestly, and and anybody can think about this, you know, think about something that you know, you know, if it's, if you're new to development, are you more willing to sit down and help the person that went out and did some research and did some work or, you know, because after a while, if it feels like, you know, they're just coming to you for the one-off answer. And in some cases, they're interrupting work that you need to get done or impairing your progress in this way, that way, or the other way. You know, yeah, it's it's much easier for me to say, you know, they, they put in some effort. I'm going to help them get through this. Yeah, you definitely don't want to be the crutch. You know, to Matt's point earlier, like, if they're coming for every question, you're not teaching them to fish. You're just giving them fish, right? And so yeah. that's that's a problem. And, and so, and yeah, and... Having done the research shows, yeah, like you said, they put effort into it. And that it, it's it's a sign of respect. respect, you know, towards the person that like, I value your time. I prepared for this versus just this test is failing. Come over here and help me. It's failing again. Come over and help me. Right. I mean, I, I, I empathize. You sound with like that. my kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I empathize with that. But. You need to, junior devs need to empathize with the senior devs too and know that, you know, there's a right way to go about being a junior dev and asking questions and dealing with your imposter syndrome. Yeah, just one caveat to that. Don't be afraid to ask. Yeah, and, and I think, yeah, senior devs need to have a high tolerance if they have a junior dev for questions that don't make sense, for stressed out junior developers, because 
if you just, you know, rip into them for a bad question to our conversation earlier, like you're backpedaling and they're, they're going to go next time they pick up a ticket, they're going to spin their wheels for 12 hours and go out on that limb that otherwise they wouldn't have. So it's, it's a delicate balance for sure. Well, and as a senior developer, right, there's multiple ways that you can respond to that because there are those, you know, bottom feeders, you know, that will ask questions and not do the research to Chuck's point. Yeah. And at that point, you need to kind of protect yourself in your own time. I, the biggest place that I've seen that is in meetup groups where you just have someone who's literally just picked up a book or found some interest in it and jumped on it. But then in a company, I've usually seen that people are less uh, willing to ask questions. But if you do get somebody coming to you that is, hasn't done the prerequisite steps for the question or said, I've looked at these three resources and I still can't figure this thing out, then that's where it's great as a senior developer, if you want to mentor somebody to say, hey, go look at this site, read through this, and then come back and let's talk about the main points of it and then talk about how it applies to your question here. Yeah, totally. The Um, other two things you have in your pocket are same thing, but pair programming, in my opinion. And you can do pair programming where you as the senior is driving or the junior is driving. And I think there are, it's two very different things, in my opinion, on how to do it with that different dynamic there. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I I should have mentioned too that, yeah, when we started, like the devs there who were mentoring me were very explicit, like your first couple of weeks will be all pair programming, right? And like, that was really, in that, in those first two weeks, they were like, ask anything and everything, right? And slowly, the longer the junior dev is there, you get a little bit more strict about like the questions they can ask, right? And you maybe say, look into this or look into that. And to your point earlier about, yeah, like telling them if they come to you and they haven't done the research and you you, you think they should, not only set, telling them to look into this or then look into that, but have a frank conversation in a very nice way because they very well may not know the culture of being a junior developer. They, they, they want to be the best, but they don't know that asking you a question is slowing down your work and just saying, you know, I want you to feel open to asking questions, but do know that when you come unprepared, I think that our interactions are a little less efficient and it does pull away from my work. And so while I do more than anything want to help you right now, just know that in the future, try to do a little bit more work on your end. And if they're a good junior dev, like that will, they'll respect that and they'll grow and they'll learn. So I think that's a big, a big part of it. And it's not even all about efficiency per se, I'd say, because I, I would think most senior people like to have questions. They like to explain and teach things because we've all gone through similar journeys. So junior devs recognize that and ask questions. And then, and then secondly, I, I would say that the reason for sending somebody back if they haven't done the prerequisites to asking the question, which are always contextual, but telling them to go out and research something then gives them a wider breadth of everything. And then the conversation that you can have with them is much more valuable. Totally. Yeah. I, I think this is, this is interesting, right? Because it's the flip side of the coin, right? How do you help people through, right? And I... It has not been my experience that there's a lot of resources out there on how to do this. I've mentored people for many years now, but I still have various elements of imposter syndrome in that domain. Like that's tough for me, right? Just always has been. 
I'm continually reminding myself that it, I'm that if I'm a little bit ahead of somebody, it doesn't matter. And, and in a lot of cases, I'm a lot ahead, but it's still, it's still rough. I, I myself sought out other mentors to kind of get advice from them on how to better mentor and things. And one of the things that I got, one of the things, so, you know, obviously I've combined some of my own observations with, with this or whatever, but I would say it from my experience that people are very different, right? And so it's been my experience that you get, not everybody is a good mentor for every single developer. And you might have to go, like if you're somebody searching for a mentor, you might have to find somebody that works for you. And if you're mentoring people, you might occasionally have to tell somebody that you don't feel like you're a good fit because sometimes they won't recognize. But one of the things that I was advised, which kind of goes along with this, I had somebody once tell me that like he just, he checks in every so often. He's like, hey, so we've, you know, I've been mentoring you for however long it is. He's like, what's your goal now, right? Like, let's just check in. Let's make sure that I'm still actually giving you what you want, things like that. And I don't know, that was super eye-opening for me is just the like, you don't, sometimes you're a good mentor for a period of time, right? And then and then your ability to mentor or your just connection with the person isn't as awesome anymore. And that's a thing to keep to chest, test as well. Yeah, I think- I, really I love that. The, in terms of the personalities melding, you know, we, we had a, he doesn't work there anymore, but one of the guys when I started, he's one of the nicest, sweetest guys, but he has a very direct manner and you have to have kind of a thick skin and he doesn't by any means mean negatively. He's willing to help you with, you know, stay up late and help you and talk philosophy or whatever you want to do. But there, his feedback can be kind of, it can be kind of rough to hear. And luckily I was, I, you know, I was, I knew he was just that way and it wasn't a problem, but, you know, for other people, they just, it was kind of, it could be rough, you know, and that's not the best situation for them. So I think you you're, well, they didn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it takes maturity on both sides to be able to acknowledge that. And it's not necessarily anyone's fault. But yeah, I like that. Interesting. It's funny because uh, when we start out episodes like this and it's like, well, if we run out of things to talk about on this one topic, we'll move on to the next. We <laughs> have, uh, we've talked for an hour, so we've done a full episode. I'm I'm just kind of curious, are there good resources out there? So let's say somebody listens to this podcast. They're not really comfortable with, you know, going out of their way to, you know, find some help or whatever. And they're thinking, you know, maybe there's a book or a video series or things like that that can help people, you know, help me get through this. Are, are there resources like that out there that you found? Yeah, and I hope I can remember the name of it. I can look it up here real quick. Well, first off, I'll say is in the first, I've, I've gone over the past few years to RubyConf and RailsConf a couple of times, and there have been some great talks on this. Um, so I can find some of those and maybe send them to you. And then another book that I, or a book that I read well, well after I started, or, you know, and I was already a senior developer, but I thought it was really on point. I think it's called, it sort of has a, clickbaity title but it's really good it's called i think success in the first 90 days and it basically is just about you know what we've been talking about in a way how do you succeed in the first 90 days on your job what sorts of things should you be doing and i thought it was um it made some great points and then uh 
I wish I had more. Yeah, it's called the first 90 days. I honestly think just books on psychology can be good, too, that I've just read over the years. And there's lots of good Medium articles I've read. But, yeah, I don't have anything specific aside from the book. But I can look for some stuff if you if you want. Yeah, we had an episode on imposter syndrome really early in Ruby Rogues. And I think that guest wrote a book, but I'm, I'm having a little trouble finding it. So, Are you freelancing or moonlighting? Or maybe you've thought about going out on your own. Every week, we have a group of developers at various stages of the freelancing journey on The Freelancer Show to talk about becoming better at freelancing. We also bring in experts to talk about marketing, SEO, and delivering high quality to clients. So if you're interested in going freelance or you are freelance, check it out at freelancershow.com. So let's, let's go ahead and do picks. Luke, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, I've been working on a system website written in Ruby and Sinatra that is updating using polling. So it's just got a bit of JavaScript in the background and it polls, polls the system and updates. And that's called short polling. But we also have a system that uses WebSockets. And WebSockets are great, they're real time, but they're really quite complicated and take a long time to develop. So I've been coming up with a system based on long polling, which is uh, a bit of a tired, tired old technology, but it is a lot simpler than WebSockets, especially when it comes to authentication. So my pick for the week is the abstract idea of long polling but I couldn't find a better, more up-to-date guide to doing it than an old 2011 blog post, which is fantastic. It really kind of introduces it. So my pick is uh, Long Polling and that uh, blog post by Jordan Hollinger. But I'd love to know about any more up-to-date guides to doing the same thing. Awesome. Folks can leave those in the comments. John, do you have some picks for us? I do. So I, I've actually, so I'm going to pick Sublime Merge today. So I've been a Sublime user for, I don't know, almost 10 years now, ever, ever since I first heard about it. Been very happy with it. And I really haven't just like moved on to anything else. And about six months ago, I don't remember exactly how I encountered it, but I just like ran across the Sublime Merge thing. And, and I, I mean, I do not, I do not use visual Git clients for, most of the Git things that I do, but I do, I like pretty diffs and I don't like the command line diff that Git gives you. And I also do all my merges or anything complex, super complex. I want to do it in a visual manner. That just helps me to make sure that I'm doing the right stuff. So I, I've always had a client over the years for, for certain aspects of what I'm doing in Git. And I used I use source tree. I've used like I've used a number of things over the years, and you know, eventually they all become not awesome anymore. And then I'm like, all right, I need to find something else. And uh, I started using Git. It always takes me like a long time to evaluate things too. But I started using this about six months ago, and I it was like last week I was using it, and I was like, this is really awesome. This is easily the best Git client that I've ever used. So I'm uh, I'm definitely recommending it. I've always been like super slow to to actually make a judgment about that, but I'm I'm actually happy to stand behind that now. Do you use Sublime Text as well? I do. I've been a text editor person ever since I got tired. I mean, I was using, what was it? I think it was Rad Rails is like the first IDE or whatever. And then it became, uh, it got bought up by Aptana or whatever. Anyway, 
And then everything was in Eclipse. And then I tried like NetBeans somewhere in there. I tried whatever the JetBrains thing is. And I just became super turned off to IDEs and I switched to text editors. And I've been actually using Sublime pretty much since that moment. Nice. We'll have to get you on the Visual Studio code train. <laughs> I, I, I have it on my machine. I have tried it out a few times, but it's like, to me, this it's still installing a version of Ruby for you. And that underneath, that's the thing that like makes me mad about IDEs is like whenever, I don't know, Apple updates or something, something gets broken with my command line installed version and the one inside my editor and I have to fix both and I hate that. Yep, I hear that. All right, Matt, what are your picks? Well, my pick, just to throw my two cents into the flame war, is Vim is the only way to go. I have utmost respect for <laughs> Emacs, but I totally agree with you, John. Text editors are the way to go. So that being said, um, my real pick for the day, though, is I think in the, in, the, in the spirit of the discussion, the book that I read at the beginning of my career was The Programmatic Programmer by Prague Prague. And evidently, it just passed 20 years, so I don't know what that says about me, but I, I didn't read the first edition. I'll have to say that as well, though. But I think that one, I can't remember because it's been 10 years since I picked it up, but it talks about, you know, getting comfortable with tools all the way up to, you know, how to deal with the real world and how teams work together. And I would think that that would be super helpful for someone jumping into this career. Yeah, that's a great point. We, uh, we have an engineering team book club at uh, Go Noodle, and that was one of the books we read, and it was definitely uh, one of my favorites. Yeah, it's, it's one of the ones that I read early on in my career, too. So, yeah, love that book. All right, I'm going to throw out some picks. Everybody picked, like, tech and programming stuff. I have a, another project I'm starting. It's called Podcast Playbook. You can find it at mypodcastplaybook.com. And Essentially, so I've been going through, this is another pick. It's a marketing pick. I don't know how many of you are familiar with ClickFunnels, but they have a one funnel away challenge. And uh, the challenge is essentially for you to set up a marketing funnel. I kind of need one for the podcast sponsorship. So I've been working on that. And in the meantime, I'm currently in week two, or if you count the pre-training week, week three, and they encourage us to make content. And I'm like, oh, I'm kind of doing that, but I'm not really doing it for the, um, the podcast audiences, right? You know, the audiences that you're going, it's going to bring me traffic for the um, sponsorships or for, I'm working on a podcasting course as well. It's all going to be a podcast playbook. So um, if you're interested in learning how to podcast or learning how to sponsor a podcast, I'm still getting the website set up as we speak but we're a few weeks ahead on release. So it should be up and running by the time you get this. They challenge you to do 365 days of content. And we don't have any shows that release every day. In fact, I don't think we have any shows that release more than once a week. And so this kind of got me thinking. And so I'm going to go out there and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pull the stops out and just go for it. So if you want to learn how to podcast, go check that out. I'm probably going to be doing something similar around careers and some of the stuff that you find in Pragmatic Programmers, but I don't have that going yet. So keep an eye out for that as well. That'll probably just wind up reviving the DevRev and we'll have a video every day for 365 days. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much where we're at with that stuff. Dylan, do you have some picks for us? My pick's going to be Redshift. I'm not a data analyst, but the data team at GoNoodle uses Redshift to house 
our data. And recently we had a feature request to when a user goes to a channel, we wanted to show the a randomly selected most popular video from that channel. And the query for that was to get the top four most watched videos for that channel in the last 60 days. And this was by no means something we could do in line. When we ran it against our you know, database that the Rails app typically interfaces with, it honestly took like three minutes, even when optimized as much as possible because we tried to get the data team to do it. And in Redshift, it could do it in like three seconds. And I'm not by any means a database master, but it's I, it has something to do with Redshift, it basically can parallelize queries across multiple nodes, and it's a columnar database as opposed to row-based, so it's optimized for reads. And yeah, I've just been blown away by how fast it is, and it allowed us to... We still didn't do the query in line because three to five seggings is still too long, so we created a cron job that runs every night that queries for those videos and the most popular per channel puts that into a popular videos uh, table, and then that's what's queried in line. But yeah, it was just, Redshift is amazing. And uh, I just, I got to give my hat off to them. So that's my pick. Yeah, you got to love those tools that it's like, you know what, I don't want to know this. I don't want to know how to know this. I just, (laughs) I just want the answer at the end of the day. And yeah, if, if they make it simple and are cost effective. Yeah, good stuff. All right, Dylan, if people want to connect with you online, I'm guessing you're on social media, GitHub, places like that. Where do people find you? Uh, so you can find Twitter on Dylan1Andrews. And I've got a blog and this website, which is dylanandrews.dev. And yeah, and you can find me on GitHub under Dylan Andrews. And uh, thanks again for having me on. It was a blast. There are some super cool dudes and it was fun. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for coming. Yeah. All right, folks, we're going to wrap this one up. And until next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.